Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And we have a variety of things for you this week. After my clearing the decks of the streaming stuff, we've got some cinematic fare, one Disney Plus film and three Netflix films for you. So something for everybody potentially cinematically we have the nostalgic family friendly animation dog tanyan and the three musker hounds the wildly exuberant musical adaptation in the heights and ben wheatley's film which he conceived of and shot during lockdown in the earth we also have the new Pixar film, which has been released onto Disney+, Plus, Luca. And as I was putting together my list of potential films I wanted to watch on Netflix, I noticed that two of the films were actually Filipino, which is a little bit odd. I mean, the Philippines does actually have a rather robust film industry, and there were two... Filipino films which ended up on Netflix within rapid succession so I decided to watch both of them so from the Philippines we have The Girl and the Gun and Fangirl and a much more mainstream Netflix release that was released just in time for Father's Day is Kevin Hart trying his hand at drama in fatherhood But let's start with the cinematic releases. And first up, I want to talk about Dog Tanyan and the Three Muskerhounds, which, technically speaking, is coming out this coming weekend, but was given some preview screenings last weekend, probably in order to pad out the box office numbers, but regardless. Dog Tanyan and the Three Muskerhounds was originally a cartoon series produced in 1981. It was one of those co-productions between Europe and Japan where European producers came up with concepts and then sent them off to Japan in order to be made. This particular one, Dog Tanyan and the Three Muscals, was a Spanish property which was made by the same company who did Willy Fogg around the world in 80 days, but didn't do similar projects like The Lost Cities of Gold or Ulysses 31. 
Now, all of these cartoons I absolutely loved when I was a kid. And when I saw that they'd made a Dogtanian movie, I was shocked. I mean, I had no idea it was coming out, and suddenly it was on the schedules of my local cinema. So I thought, what the fuck? So I tweeted this out, and the director retweeted and liked it, which was odd, particularly since I swore. But anyway, I did want a nostalgia kick, and I did go and see Dog Tanyon and the Three Musk Hounds very early on a Sunday morning in order to fit it into my football-watching schedule. And I was actually the only person in the screen watching it, but anyway. Dog Tanyon and the Three Musk Hounds is a reasonably faithful, albeit somewhat sanitised, version of the first half of Alexandre Dumas' classic novel, The Three Musketeers, in which young, hot-headed D'Artagnan, or Dog-Tanyan in this anthropomorphised animal world, dreams of joining the king's musket-hounds, or musketeers, in 1625 France at roughly the same time that James I is on the throne in England. Once he gets to Paris and is turned away from being a musker hound, he individually meets three actual musker hounds, Porthos, Athos and Aramis, and because he is a hothead, challenges each of them to a duel, and when they realise that these three professional swordsmen are basically going to be fighting this kid. They say, are you sure about this? But then they have to team up in order to fight off the soldiers of the evil Colonel Richelieu, who has schemes to essentially take over France. So after fighting off the Cardinal's forces, these three musketeers or musker hounds and this hot-headed youngster Dogtanyan join up and become involved in a plot revolving around a particular diamond necklace owned by the Queen of France, and Dogtanyan incidentally starts falling in love passionately with the Queen's maidservant, and an adventure is set upon in order to retrieve this necklace which will prevent war between England and France. And yes, the cartoon family-friendly version of this story is a lot less salacious than the Alexandre Dumas original, which has a lot more infidelity and problematic marriages than the cartoon. But yeah, it's a reasonably close adaptation of The Three Musketeers. And I think this was exactly what I wanted it to be. It polishes up the old cartoons. I mean, I did have a, a, a check out, because it's years and years, I mean, decades since I've seen Dog Tanyan. So it's actually all 26 episodes of Dog Tanyan are up on YouTube at the moment at time of recording. I mean, how long they'll stay up there, I'm not sure. But at time of recording, all 26 episodes are up on YouTube. And I did have a quick look. And the story 
is fine. But it does have issues in common with a lot of these old, quickly made, cheaply made cartoons. The theme music for Dogtanian and the Three Bus Counts is awesome. I have to say that. Actually, for younger listeners, you might not even know what it is. So here's a little clip of the theme tune for Dogtanian and the Three Muskerhounds. And yes, that is awesome, but it takes a full two and a half minutes at the beginning of every episode, so that's a lot of time for the slot on television that you don't need to animate every week. There's a lot of repetitive animation with the same bits being used over and over again. It's done cheaply, it's done quickly, and to modern eyes, it also moves very very slowly so having the same basic story and indeed the same basic designs i mean everything is exactly the same it's done by the same original company that originally did the cartoon in 1981 so having the same designs having the same aesthetics just updating it and doing it in cg rather than cell-drawn animation it works the story's great, I mean, buckles are swashed, adventure is had, romance is had, albeit very, very quickly. I mean, basically these two people, you know, Kitty, the maidservant, and Dog Tanyan, meet each other twice and suddenly they're passionately in love. It's adventurous, it's fun. It basically works, but there are a couple of odd decisions. Having Aramis, one of the three musketeers, talk in rhyming couplets was perhaps the wrong thing to do. To a modern ear, to a modern audience, that's incredibly cheesy. At a certain point, a pirate shows up in the plot of Dogtanian, which is not part of the Alexandre Dumas original, or at least not in this form basically because the form is Long John Silver. It's extraordinary to see just how much of a cultural footprint Robert Louis Stevenson's Long John Silver and Treasure Island have had, particularly from the live-action Disney version from 1950. That version of Long John Silver has become the de facto template for pirates having the parrot having the peg leg speaking with a southwest accent i mean pirates going r is basically down to the fact that in 1950 long john silver was played by an actor named robert newton who came from dorset so he played long john silver with a dorset accent and Therefore, all pirates ever since have had Dorset accents. 
the cultural footprint of that particular portrayal of Long John Silver cannot be underestimated. And it goes on here. I mean, when a pirate shows up, it gets rather meta in the fact that, yes, this pirate has a parrot, and the parrot has a peg leg, which is combining a lot of stuff together. Yeah, so it's simple, simplistic even. It's a swashbuckler. I mean, they even have a gag about how when sword fights starts on ships they inevitably rip up the sails because everybody's stabbing into the sails and falling down them i mean that's a little bit too much of a meta gag for this very simplistic story but it's there and yeah it's it's perfectly fine i mean yes it is cheap but it's not distractingly cheap i mean yes the textures the lighting are not up to the standards of the gigantic american cg animation companies it can't compete with that it just does not look quite as good and when there are massed ranks of people on screen where there's sort of like three or four sword fights going on simultaneously on screen the choreography is a little bit awkward the patience, the attention to detail isn't quite there compared to the gigantic, big-budget, glossy, animated features that we are more or less used to. But what is there is absolutely fine, absolutely entertaining. As somebody like me who just wanted a nostalgia kick, it absolutely works. I think it's a good way to introduce young children to not only this type of anthropomorphized adaptation of classic literature but also the Duma short story because like I said it is very sanitized from the Duma original and it still works. Pass Me now really really wants a film adaptation of Sherlock Hound which I used to have on VHS videotape when I was about six or seven my mum used to work in a video store and she got all the old tapes so i watched sherlock hound for years and years i mean because my dad was a big fan of sherlock holmes and i liked cartoons and it was only decades later that i realized that was some very early work from hayao miyazaki so yeah i'd love to see sherlock hound but more than anything i'd absolutely die to see a feature film adaptation of the lost cities of gold that kind of fantastical new age project which raises questions about colonialism and power and influence you could do a lot with the lost cities of gold in a modern big budget or reasonably big budget animated feature so i'd love to see that but what we have is dogtanian and it did absolutely what i expected it to it did absolutely what i wanted it to it ticked all the boxes it hit all my buttons and i really enjoyed myself so it's cheap it's simple but it's fun so for me dogtanian and the three muskerhounds is a solid Ma.
Next up, we have the big budget musical In the Heights. With songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda, I mean, this was his big break on Broadway in, what, 2002, I think it was. And then, obviously, he became a global icon following Hamilton. But this is what got people to take notice of Lin-Manuel Miranda when In the Heights was performed on Broadway. As is so often the case, a recognisable name or a seemingly recognisable and bankable name has an old project, let's put it into production. So we have this big glossy musical which is written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, or the songs were written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and it is directed by John M. Chu, whose big break came when he directed Step Up to the Streets. He also directed Step Up 3D. So he has a background in these big song and dance movies, but he's bankable because he also directed Crazy Rich Asians. So... Yeah, it looked set. A successful, or at least well-regarded, musical with Crasis behind it who had been bankable before. I mean, let's not forget, Lin-Manuel Miranda also did some of the songs for Moana. So, it looked like a can't-miss proposition. And it was supposed to come out last year, but obviously then the world broke. So, here it is coming out now. And this is a story set in the region of New York called Washington Heights, a very ethnically diverse, very working-class region of New York, which is also sometimes known as Little Dominican Republic. And in this largely Latin community, a bodega owner played by Anthony Ramos is trying to save up all the money he can in order to sell the bodega and go back home to the Dominican Republic where he wants to buy and renovate his dad's ramshackle old beach bar. This is his dream, but it is complicated by the fact that he is clearly deeply in love with a local girl who works at the nail salon played by Melissa Barrera and she kind of fancies him too but she too has dreams which are taking her away from Washington Heights she wants to move downtown and go to fashion school and move into the much more upmarket areas of Manhattan also going on at the same time is the local taxi company owner Jimmy Smits is basically the richest man on the block and he has desperately tried to give his daughter Leslie Grace a better start in life so he is sacrificing everything to send her to Stanford all the way across the, the country in California but Leslie Grace is back for the holidays and is unsure whether going back to Stanford is the right thing for her particularly when she is making eyes at her father's right-hand man, the only black man on the cast, Corey Hawkins. So their relationship is complicated as well. 
So as these two young couples try and navigate the complications of their relationships, it emerges that a lottery ticket which was sold at Anthony Ramos's bodega actually won. And somebody on this small, ethnically diverse block of Washington Heights has just won $96,000. So who is it and will it change their life? Will it change everybody's life? And we will find out and we will have lots of song and dances to go alongside it. I'm not generally a fan of musicals. But I do like Lin-Manuel Miranda's work, and I was intrigued by this story of working-class Latin people dreaming big. I mean, there's you know, a recurring idea of sueñito, the little dream. And for Anthony Ramos, the little dream is to go back to the Dominican Republic and renovate his dad's beach bar. The sueñito for Melissa Barrera is to go downtown and become a fashion designer. Everybody has these little dreams, and possibly that might be made easier when somebody cashes in this $96,000 winning lottery ticket. So how is that going to affect the community? It is also relevant, you know, the little dream, because something that is in this film that apparently was added between the stage production and this film version is the idea of dreamers. The idea of kids who have been raised in the United States but aren't technically citizens and might be deported at any minute, particularly in the Trump administration. So, yes, this idea of dreams and dreamers is definitely something that's strongly there. So there is a little bit of political comment and there's a lot of thought-provoking stuff. I mean, this is a very, very proudly Latin community. It is a, a genuine community. People know each other, people like each other, people support each other, which is so rare in the modern world, particularly in a big city like New York. But this is a community. They are proud of where they come from, but equally they are desperate to leave, or desperate to encourage those who can leave to leave. One of the subplots around this Stanford student, Leslie Grace, is the pressure that has been put upon her. I mean, you are clearly a very, very bright girl. You can get out, so you should get out. You should go to the big university. You should get your degree. You should make something of yourself. You should make us proud. And the pressure that is put on this young woman is killing her, basically, and you know, not wanting to disappoint her father, Jimmy Smith. The push and the pull of being proud of where you come from, but also desperately wanting to leave, comes up time and time again in this film. And the pressures and the ideas of what it is like to be a Latin person in America, particularly in New York, right now is very much part of this film and it shows its expression in these gigantic huge production numbers these song and dance numbers there's three arguably four huge production numbers in this and they are jaw-dropping 
I particularly want to point you in the direction of the track 96,000, where everybody hears that there's this winning lottery ticket out there, and everybody starts singing about what they would do with $96,000. And this takes place at a swimming pool, at the local swimming pool. So eventually it turns into one of those Busby Berkeley water ballets you know, with John Cho having the camera above it and you know, patterns being made and everything. It, it's huge, it's impressive, it's wonderful. I believe that the entire track 96,000 is available on YouTube. I think it might still be there. And I do urge you to check it out. It's fantastic. I mean, and that's one of the huge production numbers. There's another one which opens the film, you know, the, the track in the Heights, which introduces all the characters, the situation. And that's definitely on YouTube, and, and I recommend that. There's another one called um, Carnaval de Barrio, which goes into the unity of the Latin community and also the diversity of the Latin community ish, which I will get onto in a minute. That's a huge production number. And there's another one, Pacencia y Fe, Patience and Faith, which. Yes, it does have elaborate choreography to it, which is impressive, but it's much more of a slow-burning number, much more of a ballad, so you can argue whether that's a big production number. But these three or four huge production numbers are jaw-dropping, they're extraordinary, they're exuberant, they're fun, they're brilliant. And yes, those are definitely worth the price of admission. But... This film is two and a half hours long. It really is too long. I was in this screening Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and there were, I don't know, 10 or 11 people there, and there was one young family, I mean, a mother and two daughters, who were about, I don't know, about eight or nine, probably, who just walked out before the end of the film. I mean, the children had clearly had enough. And yes, you do start to feel the length. So yeah, that's one problem. And the other problem is the controversy which has bubbled up at the release of this film. There started being a lot of criticism laid at Lin-Manuel Miranda about the lack of inclusion of Afro-Latino people in this film. Dark-skinned people from the Dominican Republic, from Puerto Rico, from Colombia, whatever. There was a huge backlash against Lin-Manuel Miranda saying, this is colorism. This is, once again, Latin people with dark skins being excluded from a major project. And Lin-Manuel Miranda apologised and said he, he needed to do better. Rita Moreno made comments in support of Lin-Manuel Miranda because Rita Moreno has a new documentary about her life just come out, which is just premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. And I have to say, I am desperate to see that now because I think Rita Moreno is awesome she always lights up the room whenever she presents at the Oscars, which she does almost every year. So, yeah, I love Rita Moreno and I really want to watch her documentary, which was produced by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And in an interview, Rita Moreno supported her friend and the producer of her film, Lin-Manuel Miranda, saying, you know, can't we all just get along? 
And then almost instantly she had to roll back those comments when she started getting criticism online about the lack of Afro-Latino inclusion in this film. So she was browbeaten down by social media as well. And yes, there are no Afro-Latino people in leading roles in this film. There are definitely people in the background who are Afro-Latino. There's no question about that, but there is nobody in leading roles who is Afro-Latino. And maybe that's an issue. I mean, here I sit as a white, English, cisgendered man. This is not my struggle. This is not my fight. All I will say from my perspective on these controversies is when Latin people are starting to criticise Lin-Manuel Miranda, you are doing the racist's job for them. And this controversy, this backlash, might have contributed to the fact that In the Heights did not do well at the box office. It made about half as much money as it was anticipated to make at the box office. And that includes not doing particularly well on HBO Max, where it was simultaneously released, for home viewing. So, In the Heights, in relative terms, has not been a success. Which is so annoying. A, because it means that general audiences maybe weren't ready for a virtually entirely Latin film. I think there's one white person who has a speaking line in this film. I mean, a line that I can remember off the top of my head. The rest of the cast is entirely Latin with Corey Hawkins as one black guy. So maybe people weren't prepared for that. Maybe the controversy from the Afro-Latino backlash contributed to people not watching it. But either way, Hollywood will now be much, much less ready to take a quote-unquote risk on a Latin film again. It's so frustrating. I mean, one step forward, two steps back. And it's so slow. And the frustrating thing is that we probably won't get more films like this in the future because it didn't do as well as it was anticipated, at least on its opening weekend. It didn't even make number one at the US box office. It was beaten by A Quiet Place Part 2, which has been out for three weeks. So, I mean, that's how bad it did. It couldn't even make number one at the US box office. But possibly it could be one of those films that just has really, really long legs. I mean, The Greatest Showman didn't do great opening weekend, didn't make number one, and then it continued not doing great at the box office for four or five months. It was consistently in the top ten for four or five months, and everyone just went back to see The Greatest Showman. And hopefully, fingers crossed, that will be the same for In the Heights. It did not have a good opening week, but maybe hopefully it will have a long shelf life 
because this is the kind of film we want and need. It's exuberant, it's fun, it's thrilling. It does have occasional political points and occasional thought-provoking moments. It does have tinges of tragedy here and there. But overall, this is a wild, operatic ride. I mean, literally operatic. It is kind of like opera, with you know, the big production numbers being the arias and the stuff in between being the recitatives. Many of the tracks, many of the songs in In the Heights are pretty short and are just getting the plot from A to B, including a piragua cellar, a shaved ice cellar, played by Lin-Manuel Miranda, <laughs> cameoing in his own film who has a rivalry with a Mr. Softy ice cream truck. And the owner of that ice cream truck is played by the guy who did the Corey Hawkins role originally on stage, as Lin-Manuel Miranda originally did the Anthony Ramos role on stage, although he's clearly too old now. But yeah, that was a nice little thing. So yeah, there are these big, gigantic numbers, and in between there's shorter, more functional songs used and it does end up having this operatic feel and it's so much fun i really really do recommend this i hope it does have legs i hope it is eventually a success because i want more films like this i want films that are simple are joyful I want entertainment. Yes, I do sometimes tend towards the dark and the depressing. Some of my art house films over the years have been incredibly depressing. But sometimes you just want fun, and that's exactly what In the Heights is. It's gigantic, it's exuberant, it's fun. Yes, it's too long, but I do thoroughly recommend it. And for the financial support, if for nothing else, I do strongly recommend In the Heights. It is a yay. Next up, we have the film In the Earth, which was conceived, shot, and produced during lockdown by Ben Wheatley, who is one of my absolute favourite filmmakers. In it, we are following a scientist played by Joel Fry who is living in a world devastated by a deadly virus. Doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> but he is heading off into some dense woods in order to meet up with a colleague he hasn't seen for years, but did used to have a relationship with, played by Hayley Squires. Because in this particular wood, GPS and cell phones don't work. In order to safely get to Hayley Squires, Joel Fry needs a guide, played by Elora Torquia. So Joel Fry and Elora Torquia head off into the woods in order to try and find Hayley Squires and help her with her work. But along the way, they meet a crazy guy living in the woods, played by Reese Shearsmith. And quite apart from the global medical catastrophe, stuff starts getting really fucking weird. 
And that's basically as simple as it gets. I mean, I do like the work of Ben Wheatley. Yes, he's a little bit hit or miss, but in general, I think his hits outweigh his misses. Sightseers is a masterpiece in my mind. I really like his early films, including Kill List. I think his version of Rebecca was pretty damn good, actually. I mean, it didn't get very good reviews, but I think it was perfectly competent, albeit I really didn't like the fact they made the lesbian subtext text. But anyway, I like Ben Wheatley's work, and I was curious to see what he would do with a short time frame and a small cast. Because the last time he did a film with a similar kind of vibe, I didn't actually like it very much. A Field in England wasn't that good as far as I'm concerned, and that also happened to feature Reese Shearsmith, one of his regular collaborators. So I was a little bit trepidatious about this because I was worried it was going to be another A Field in England and I wouldn't end up liking it. But for the most part, I did like In the Earth, albeit I personally think it needed one or two more polishes at the script stage. The explanation for this film, or the the scientific version of the explanation, I mean, well, it's one of those films that you could believe it is genuinely supernatural, genuine witchcraft, or there's something a little bit more explicable going on. And the explicable side of things was buried a little bit too deep in the film, to my taste. I mean, it is there, but it's under-explained. And I honestly only really understood one of the things that was going on because I'd recently listened to another podcast. I listened to the BBC Radio 4 science podcast, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, in which scientists Dr Adam Rutherford and Dr Hannah Fry explain scientific stuff, basically. I mean, that's the the root cause of it. People send in questions and they use science to answer them. And one of the episodes that I'd only recently listened to before going into In the Earth was all about mushrooms, and particularly the mycorrhizian mats, which sometimes crop up in forests. I mean, there is supposedly a fungal entity in a forest in Oregon, which is the largest living thing in the world. It covers an area of five square kilometres and has been given the accurate but somewhat cheeky title of the humongous fungus. So because I had heard that podcast only a few days before watching In the Earth, I kind of understood one of the things that was going on. And what Joel Fry and Hayley Squires are trying to achieve is partly due to investigating these funguses underneath this forest in the middle of nowhere, a forest where GPS and cell phones don't work. But it's really not explained well enough to my taste. 
what Hades Squires is trying to do is trying to increase crop yields, is help agriculture by using these fungal spores. And that is what Joel Fry is going to try and help her with. But it would have been so easy to just make them mycologists, make them people who study mushrooms. Because then we would have had an opportunity for the mushroom scientist Joel Fry to talk to his guide, Elora Torquia, and say, you know, this is what a mycorrhizal mat is. This is what we're investigating. I mean, basically, we are walking over a kilometres wide mushroom. It would have been so easy. It, it could have added something to the film, I think. I mean, yes, there are deliberate and direct shots of mushrooms on the ground, and we see them releasing their spores. And towards the end of the film, there is a mist, and it is specifically said this mist is largely made up of fungal spores. So mushrooms are a part of this film definitively. But I think a tiny bit more explanation was needed. Because towards the end of this film, it gets really, really fucking surreal. The psychedelic, almost subliminal images which are used towards the end of the film, it's just flash, 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 I mean, and you know, weird noises and sounds. I mean, music was done by, by Clint Mansell for this film. Strange hums and noises are actually part of the film, part of the plot towards the end as well. So we have all these things. We have the idea of excessive noise, excessive light. And we have people who are, in my opinion, under the influence of hallucinogenic mushrooms. So it gets very, very psychedelic and surreal. It's one of those films that I'm sure eventually somebody is going to get the DVD of this or, or the, the streaming thing and go through it frame by frame to pick up all the tiny little subliminal images which are in this, because I'm sure there's hundreds of them. It's that kind of wild hallucinatory experience that you're not really sure what's going on and it does kind of work but i do think we needed more explanation of the whole fungal thing particularly the fact that one of the things that happened to joel fry in lockdown is he was infected with ringworm which is a fungal infection and yes it is said in one line but i do think the fact that joel fry has been infected by a fungal infection is relevance and importance, and I think a little bit more could have been made of that. I mean, basically, I wanted them to talk a tiny bit more about mushrooms. I mean, all it needed was one or two extra lines and to make Joel Fry an actual mycologist, which would make sense in the course of the plot. That's all it needed. But instead, we went for this abstract, hallucinatory, psychedelic experience, which, yes, does work is creepy and all that kind of stuff. But it would have been, in my opinion, even wilder, even more exuberant if we had a firmer grounding in reality and a firmer grounding in science. And yeah, it's... In general, I think it's very good. I mean, the implications of the final scene, of the final line, are 
very impressive. I did like that a lot. And it does build into the ideas which have been presented up until that point. I mean, both the quasi-scientific and the quasi-witchcraft ideas. It plays into that a lot. I really, really like the implications of the final scene. But I think it's a little bit too abstract. It's a little bit too psychedelic. It's a little bit too hallucinatory for its own good. This film has been getting mixed reviews from audience members. And possibly the lack of explanation is part of that. But equally, it's just not a film that is easily pigeonholed. I mean, it's much more in the kind of quote-unquote A24 strand of horror. The much more art house, much more cerebral end of the horror market than, you know, jump scares and slashing. But, yeah, I think this is good, but with one or two tweaks, it might have been great. So for me, I do recommend In the Earth. Ben Wheatley continues to be one of my favourite directors. And this latest film, with a limited cast, limited locations, and clever filming techniques, shot and conceived during lockdown, I think In the Earth is a high meh. Watch at home. I had a minor technical issue this week. So, while I intended to watch more streaming films this week, I only ended up managing to watch one. Fortunately, it was probably the bigger streaming release of the week, the Disney Plus released Pixar movie, Luca. Which is yet another attempt by both Disney and Pixar to show different cultures and different identities from around the world. In this particular case, setting the story in the Ligurian coast, up in the far north on the border of France, of Italy. Unsurprisingly, the director of this Pixar film, Enrico Cossarossa, is originally from Genoa in Liguria, Italy. and. He made a film based in that time region. After making a short back in 2011, which was attached to Brave, called La Luna, which was a cute little short. I mean, honestly, not one of the best ones that Pixar's ever done, but it was a cute little short, which was also somewhat based around Italian fishermen. And that's what this film is all about. There is a community of mer people slash gillmen. I mean, they more look like the creature from the Black Lagoon than a mermaid, but they live under the sea just off the coast of Liguria in Italy. And one boy, voiced by Jacob Tremblay, is a bored, frustrated young man who is only deemed worthy enough to look after the sheep-like fish. 
I mean, these are fish who graze on kelp and who bar underwater. They're basically sheep underwater, but they're fish. And they're kind of cute, it has to be said. But this um, shepherd, for want of a better term, dreams of a life above the surface. And one day, accidentally, he is drawn into the orbit of another young merboy who spends a lot of time above the surface, and young Luca, voiced by Jacob Tremblay, joins him. And these two merpeople masquerading as humans start dreaming of staying permanently on the surface, and all they want to do is get a Vesper scooter, which they see on a poster. And they decided that the best way to get this Vespa scooter is to enter a local sports competition, a local race, in order to get this strange gold thing called money in order to buy themselves a Vespa and travel the world. And in order to enter and win this contest, they enlist the somewhat reluctant help of a local girl who lives in this Italian fishing village, voiced by Emma Berman. So Jacob Tremblay, Jack Dylan Grazer and Emma Berman try to win this race, this contest, and try and keep one step ahead of Luca's parents, voiced by Maya Rudolph and Jim Gaffigan, and also away from his uncle, a cameo by Sasha Baron Cohen. So can they win this race? Can they get a Vesper? And can they stay above the surface? And keep hidden in an Italian fishing community who actively hunts sea monsters. It's a pretty basic story, and it has to be said, it is a pretty basic film. This is not classic Pixar. It's pretty standard. You can see pretty much exactly what's going to happen all the way through the film. Why do so many films have to end up in some kind of sports contest? Even films that aren't quote-unquote sports movies end up in sports contests more often than not. I mean, Monsters University is another Pixar example. And there's other strong elements of Disney and Pixar's previous work. I mean, this is an environment in which the human world is scary and dangerous and monstrous. I mean, you should not go to the surface, you will die. Very much like Monsters, Inc. Luca's parents, particularly his overbearing mother, voiced by Maya Rudolph, is incredibly restrictive because they are so fearful of what will happen when they go out of the family environment. Very much like Finding Nemo. I mean, there's clear parallels here to The Little Mermaid. It's pretty basic, pretty standard stuff. And yes, it's got cute moments. I mean, this little Italian girl voiced by Emma Berman is the typical kind of spunky, irreverent girl. I mean, I'm just as rough and tumble as the boys. I am not feminine in the slightest. And whenever she swears, it's always Saint Cheese. I mean, like. Santa Pecorino, or Santa Golgonzola, or 
Santa mozzarella. I mean, that kind of thing, which is weird but cute. And it, it does have a, a somewhat limited view of Italian culture, I would say. I mean, basically, Italian culture, as far as this film is concerned, comes down to soccer, cycling, and pasta. It would almost be offensive if it wasn't written and directed by an Italian, or at least somebody who was born in Italy. So, yeah, it's doing the thing of inclusivity. It's doing the thing of, here is a culture, let's explore it. I mean, apparently the next Disney film is going to be set in Colombia, or a fictionalised version of Colombia at least. And Raya and the Last Dragon, only a couple of months ago, was set in a fictionalised version of the Far East. They are doing this more and more often, being more and more inclusive. For absolutely no reason, and it's not really brought up in the script, this little Italian girl, Emma Berman, her fisherman father, only has one arm. And it just happens. It's just there. I mean, there's one line saying, you know, I was born this way, and we move on. Okay, nice inclusivity. And it has a mild variation on the old animation trope, which I repeatedly talk about, the cute animal sidekick. This film does not have a cute animal sidekick, I mean, arguably other than the one or two brief scenes where we have these sheep slash fish. But here we have an animal antagonist, because the cat owned by Emma Berman, immediately sees, I literally smell something fishy here, and starts attacking these two mere people masquerading as humans. So, being constantly under threat from attack by this cat, and having to buy her off with fish, is a cute little subplot, and a a mild variation on the cute animal sidekick trope. So... Yeah, I mean, the message of inclusivity, the message of understanding. I mean, maybe we shouldn't try to kill these mer people. Maybe we should be friends with them, is obviously and clearly where this film is going, and that's where it ends up. And yeah, it, it's pretty basic, pretty standard stuff. It's rock solid. It's not classic Pixar by any stretch of the imagination, but it is perfectly serviceable, perfectly fine perfectly entertaining and mediocre pixar is still miles better than most animated fare out there so yeah i do essentially recommend luca on disney plus it's not mind-blowing but it is a rock solid meh netflix and chill so as i said a little earlier as i was putting together the list of films that interested me that were coming up on netflix I noticed that two of them were from the Philippines. So I thought, oh, that's an interesting quirk. I may as well watch them together. So I did. And the first film from the Philippines, which I watched, is called The Girl and the Gun. Or possibly you'll find it as The Woman and the Gun, or possibly The Girl with the Gun. It's the troubles of trying to adequately translate something into another country. I mean, the original title is Babai at Baril, Girl and Gun, which I'm not sure is just a punchy title or if that's just Filipino grammar, but on Netflix, at least here in the UK, it is listed as The Girl and the Gun. It stars Janine Gutierrez, who is apparently 
the star of a long-running TV show in the Philippines as an underappreciated, downtrodden young woman who works at a department store. Nobody takes her seriously. Nobody pays attention to her. She is manipulated and exploited and assaulted by the people around her. But one day, late at night, she hears a gunshot outside her window, something which, unfortunately, is not all that uncommon in Quezon City, where she lives. She goes out to investigate and discovers a gun, a revolver, in the trash outside her house. And she picks it up. And owning this gun finally makes her stand up for herself, including confronting the man who assaulted her. This is a situation where there are no nice guys. And quite frankly, no nice people really in this film. But owning this gun gives her power, makes her fight back. Or at least that's the limited synopsis of this film, and therein lies the problem. Ultimately, what this film turns into is a film of two halves, literally. The title of this film, I think, is entirely relevant and apposite, because the first half of the film is this plot I've just described, this young woman, Janine Gutierrez, finding this gun and it empowering her. But the second half of the film is the story of the gun. The story of how the gun got made, the different hands it passed through before it ended up outside Janine Gutierrez's house. The first half is the story of the girl, the second half is the story of the gun. And that, in and of itself, is not the worst idea ever. I just think it's been executed incredibly poorly. And also the directions the plot goes in, I'm not sure I agree with and I'm not sure was set up well enough by the premise of the film. I liked the fact that, in a lot of ways, this film is basically a bog-standard rape-revenge movie. Some of those exploitation, nasty films like I Spit on Your Grave or Ms. 45 or Lipstick, you know, those crappy American exploitation films from the 70s and early 80s, which were updated by other countries, particularly in France, where we've had things like and Irreversible, and also the film called Revenge, which was actually pretty good. I mean, this idea of the rape-revenge fantasy, the rape-revenge film, is a pretty standard one. And this film, or at least the first half of this film, goes down those paths on rails, almost, until it doesn't. Because what I liked about this film is the fact that Janine Gutierrez owns the gun, but she doesn't necessarily use it. The simple fact that she has this gun, she has access to this gun, 
gives her the confidence, gives her the belief to actually make a difference in her life. She doesn't actually use it. And I really, really liked that fact. I thought, you know, the ideas of empowerment through simply owning a weapon, that's a really interesting thing to explore. And, you know, confronting the person who raped you with a gun and deciding whether or not you are actually going to shoot. I think that's an interesting moral and ethical question, particularly in cinema, where we are used to this rape revenge trope of, yes, of course, the woman's going to kill the guy, but not necessarily in this case. But honestly, I think it goes a little bit too far. And when she does eventually start using the gun, I mean, not necessarily in the ways you expect, but she does use the gun. And that, I think, diminished the power and the impact of the rather interesting premise that was set up by the initial setup of the film. And then we move on to the second half of the film, which goes through the creation and the use and the people that this gun passes through. And uh, it has some interesting social commentary to it. I mean, some of the people it passes through the hands of turn out to be police but these are police who are perfectly happy to just go up to people and summarily execute them in the streets that's just something that happens in the philippines and if you know anything about rodrigo duterte yes that happens in the philippines so there's a a little bit of socio-political commentary to this and you know the people this gun passes through the hands of some people actively wanting to use it, some people not knowing how to and not wanting to. That's an interesting thing to explore in theory on paper, but putting it in this context when we've already had this rape revenge plot for the first half of the film, it doesn't necessarily work, it doesn't necessarily land. I think this is two different films inexpertly melded together. And I think each diminishes the other. And it ends up not really working. I mean, it certainly doesn't help that the score is incredibly weird. I mean, it's a kind of a modern jazz score almost, which just sounds really dissonant and really goes against the Filipino environments in which we are setting this story. So. Yeah, it's a mixed bag, but mostly it's two films which don't work, which have been crammed together inexpertly. Although one interesting detail I will talk about is the fact that one of the people that this gun passes through the hands of turns out to be some level of gender fluid it's never explicitly said but this character is portrayed by an actress named sky teotico and i'm sorry there there isn't enough information on this actress in english to know if she is the right pronoun but i'm just going to go with it so she is in this film but presents completely as male you know dresses as male has a male haircut sounds male i mean not that i can pick up the nuances in tagalog but she sounds male she looks male 
And then eventually she takes her shirt off, she's getting changed to go out. And you realize, oh, hang on, she's bound her breasts. And I'm not really sure if the characters around this person know that this is you know, genetically a female. I mean, everybody treats her like a man. Everybody treats her like just one of the guys, so to speak. So I'm not sure if she is presenting as a man to the characters in the film, but I did find it interesting that there's some level of gender fluidity in this, which was completely beside the point and, yeah, not not something I anticipated. So, yeah, that was curious and interesting. But, yeah, all in all, The Girl and the Gun, which is probably how you're most likely to find it on Netflix, is a little bit interesting, has one or two interesting moments, but overall it's just two films that don't fit together, crammed together, and it ends up not particularly working. So for me, The Girl and the Gun is a low meh. The other Filipino film I watched on Netflix this week is called Fangirl. And it stars Charlie Dizon as a 16-year-old schoolgirl who skips class one day in order to go to a local shopping mall where a public appearance is happening for a real-life Filipino romantic film partnership, Polo Avellino and B. Alonzo. These are real people playing fictionalised versions of themselves. This mall is full of screaming fangirls, holding up signs, holding up cell phone cameras, etc. And young Charlie Dizon is so taken with Paolo Avellino that she stows away in the back of his pickup truck. And it turns out that Paolo Avellino is going to a somewhat derelict house out in the middle of nowhere with no real cell phone service, no electricity, no furniture really even. This is just a back to basics getaway, a somewhat derelict house. And it's in the middle of nowhere and suddenly young Charlie Dizon is alone with her heartthrob obsession, Paolo Avellino. And as you might anticipate in this kind of film, it turns out that Paolo Avellino is not the spotless heartthrob he presents to the world. There's some uncomfortable home truths that young Charlie Dizon has to confront about the object of her obsession. And I was curious about this film because the idea of this Filipino heartthrob actor playing a fictionalised version of himself, and apparently Paolo Avellino was also an executive producer on this film. And by the end of this film, Paolo Avellino on screen really, really does not come across at all positively. In a lot of ways, this guy is a total scumbag. And he's playing himself. (laughs) I was really curious about that. And I think this film does have interesting things to say about fandom, about obsession, about the need for celebrities, for a certain kind of person. I mean, A certain kind of escapism is needed for some of these young girls. And the 
safe obsession from a distance with somebody like Paolo Avellino is arguably healthy, but when you actually try to cross that bridge between fantasy and reality and you actually stow away in his pickup truck and end up alone with him in the middle of nowhere, things get real, things get weird, and things get kind of dangerous, actually. Seeing how that plays out, seeing how celebrity and fandom, the intertwining between those things, the codependent relationship between celebrity and fans, and the unhealthy relationship between celebrity and fans. It's really interesting to explore and uncover. I think ultimately this film is not only about celebrity and the entitlement of celebrity, I think it's also about male entitlement and the interactions between this heartthrob Paolo Avellino, who, yes, from a distance, he's cute and adorable and sings well, and he's so in love with his co-star B. Alonso, who he really isn't in love with. The difference between the image and the reality, I mean, this guy who's got a massive tattoo on his back and has basically got a dad bod and is taking drugs and is drinking in this empty, virtually derelict house. The difference between reality and fantasy is brought into focus and how this 16-year-old girl, Charlie Dizon, deals with that and copes with that and understands that or comes to understand this. I mean, in some ways, this is a coming-of-age film. I mean, this is... A 16-year-old girl who, in a lot of ways, is very immature. She is aware of sex, and it seems that potentially one of the things she thinks might happen, or she hopes might happen, is some kind of sexual encounter with Paolo Avellino. And there are sort of soft-focused, beautifully-lit fantasy sequences where you know romance and kissing is is all part of that but when it comes time for actual physical intimacy for the reality of sex and sexual contact she's really not ready for it and the more she says you know i am an adult i am mature the more she protests about that the more she sounds like a little girl And this comes across as a very, very immature character, which means that the interactions that happen between Paolo Avellino and Charlie Dizon are, in a lot of ways, very, very uncomfortable. And, yeah, I mean, I'm astonished that that Paolo Avellino was basically playing himself doing these things and playing this character. He's not a good guy. And I, I was fascinated by this and the interplay between reality and fantasy and celebrity and fans. And ultimately, Charlie Dizon gaining a tiny bit of empowerment, a tiny bit of self-determination through her experiences in this empty house in the middle of nowhere with this famous actor. So yeah, I actually really liked this film. I think in a lot of ways... It boils down to being a two-people-talking film, which I am a big fan of. Things like the Before Trilogy, 
Southside with You, End of the Tour, you know, those kind of films where it's just two people talking to each other and learning stuff about each other and learning stuff about themselves. Large, large chunks of this film are that. It's just these two people in this empty house talking to each other. And I do really like that aspect. I like the aspect of making comment about celebrity and celebrity culture and the dangers of fandom. I like that. And I think ultimately this is a very good film. The one irritating little detail about this film, or at least how it has been presented on Netflix, is not the film's fault at all. The subtitles, I don't think, were done particularly well. They were really, really toned down. There's a lot of subtitles that come up where you know, women are described as wenches, which is absurdly quaint in English. And people say, you son of a gun, and things like that. The subtitles seemed really, really censored to me. So I started paying attention to what was actually being said. And I could clearly hear in those pieces of dialogue the word puta. And I don't speak Tagalog, but I know that Spanish has an influence on the Philippines. And I know in Spanish, puta means whore. So when these women, particularly this young girl, are being described as a puta, translating it as wench really doesn't cut it. I think a much more accurate translation of the way that word is used in the film is bitch. Then calling a girl a bitch instead of a wench and saying you son of a bitch instead of you son of a gun. That is much more accurate to what this film actually is and what it should be. So the subtitles were basically censored and I just don't think that's good enough. So that's an irritating little detail about this film, but it's really not the film's fault. And other than that, really minor detail and some of the really uncomfortable things in the interactions between these two people i ended up really really liking fangirl and i actually think i'm going to give it a yay i do actually strongly recommend this filipino film fangirl on netflix i do think it just crosses the border to being a yay the final film i want to talk about in the netflix section of this particular show is fatherhood which sees kevin hart trying his hand at a little bit of drama or maybe perhaps more accurately melodrama this is directed by paul whites who has a very very strange directorial career he's probably still most famous for directing alongside his brother chris whites american pie but since then, his career has shown that, to some degree, American Pie was the aberration rather than the rule. He's got a lot of understated films along the way, and some over-the-top films. He's got a very, very broad CV. He actually got Oscar-nominated alongside his brother for Best Adapted Screenplay for About a Boy, which he also directed with his brother. And he's done some 
mainstream Hollywood trash like Cirque du Freak and Little Fockers. Some broad comedies like Admission. And he's also worked on prestige television. He's done a lot of work for Mozart in the Jungle, the highly acclaimed Amazon TV show. But personally speaking, I think the best thing that Paul Weitz has done is the film Grandma, which I personally think should have got Oscar nominated in 2016 for Best Original Screenplay. It certainly made my list of Oscar nominees. That's a really, really cool film. Sorry, Lily Tomlin as a no-nonsense lesbian grandmother who's trying to get her granddaughter an abortion. It's a, a film I highly recommend. And yeah, Paul Weitz has just had a weird career. And here he is doing this saccharine melodrama based on a memoir by a real-life person. That person being Matt Logelin, who was a young black man working for a software company in Boston, whose wife, Deborah Ayurinde, is just about to give birth. Something he's not necessarily prepared for. He's kind of immature. He hasn't even made the crib. But he's about to be a father, and his life is about to change. And his life changes even more when the day after she gives birth, his wife Deborah Ayurinde dies from a pulmonary embolism. So suddenly, this mildly immature, mildly unprepared black guy is a single father to a newborn baby, and he has to make things work, and try his best to provide for his baby daughter much to the disapproval of his mother-in-law, played by Alfre Woodard, and with the often unhelpful addition of his immature best friend, played by Lil Rel Howry. But gradually, this single father muddles through until his daughter is about 10 years old and is played by Melody Hurd. And with his 10-year-old daughter, finally going to school and fitting in and doing all that kind of stuff maybe the time has finally come for kevin hart to re-enter the dating game and one of his friends sets him up with attractive animator dewanda wise so can kevin hart and dewanda wise form a brand new family with their adorable moppet daughter melody Hurd? Again, it's a pretty basic story, and it doesn't deviate too far from the pattern you expect it to go down. Having this heart-rending, grief-stricken memoir turned into a film, it's a little bit melodramatic, it's a little bit uplifting, you know, the positivity coming out, the adorable interactions between Kevin Hart and this nine-year-old girl, Melody Heard. A lot of those seem to have been ad-libbed. It certainly has that feel to it, that flavour to it. It's just Kevin Hart and Melody Heard having fun with each other, and it just happened to be filmed by Paul White. So that's possibly the best way to go when you've got a nine-year-old actress. 
And I did notice at the end of the film that when briefly we see Kevin Hart's daughter as a three-year-old in one short scene, it was played by Melody Heard's baby sister. So keep us in the family, I guess. But yeah, I mean, the relationship between Kevin Hart and DeWanda Wise, you know, even though it's been 10 years, is it too soon? Am I ready? Can I be a, a stepmother? Is it the right thing to do? I mean, am I diminishing the memory of my dead wife? I mean, the disapproving hovering of the mother-in-law, Alfred Woodard, it's basically everything you expect to happen, even down to the mildly obnoxious best friend, Lil Ral Howery, who just does not get it on any level. He is constantly saying the wrong thing. He is constantly misunderstanding the grief that his quote-unquote friend is going through. I mean, how good a friend is he when he just does not understand what's going on and is constantly saying the wrong thing? There are several scenes in this film where Kevin Hart threatens to hit Lil Ral Howery, and personally speaking, I was right alongside with him. I was wanted to slap him so hard so many times. There is an art to being an obnoxious character on screen. This was not it. This was too far. I just really disliked that character, which is basically in there for comic relief, even though Kevin Hart is already there. I mean, even when he's doing a quote-unquote serious role, Kevin Hart just can't help but be irreverent and smart-aleck and somewhat irresponsible and immature. He's already serving that function. So what's Lil Earl Howery doing in the film? I mean, I love Lil Earl Howery. He's a good actor. I mean, obviously, Get Out and other things. I've really appreciated him in other things. I absolutely despised him in this film. And yeah, it's just very, very basic, saccharine, feel-good, weepy-type stuff. I was curious, and I went along to Russell Smith, as I often do, uh, and see what the reviews were. And it was remarkable how close the negative reviews and the positive reviews were. The reviews that gave a splat and the reviews that gave a tomato were basically saying the same thing. You know, this is bog standard stuff, it's nothing you haven't seen before, everything you anticipate in this film happens it's pretty basic pretty standard stuff and for some people that was okay and they were given a tomato for some people that wasn't enough and it was given a splat and yes there were a couple of genuinely negative reviews and one or two genuinely positive reviews but almost all of them were in this middle ground of it's competent it's solid it's totally unoriginal and for some people, that was enough. And I guess for me, it's enough too. I mean, if I was doing a binary system, I would probably say yes. I would probably give it a tomato. But since I have a trifold system, this fits perfectly in the meh category. This is the kind of film that has very low ambitions hits those ambitions, it's totally unoriginal, it's nothing you haven't seen before, but it's competently done, it hits the buttons it's trying to hit. So, yeah, it's perfectly solid, perfectly satisfactory. It's a solid, 
probably instantly forgettable meh for Fatherhood on Netflix. Coming attractions. Cinematically, this coming week is a little bit of an odd one because this is the week in which Fast and Furious 9 comes out. I have absolutely zero interest in the Fast and Furious franchise. I think I've seen 1 and 3. I think I've seen 2. Other than that, I just couldn't give a shit. So since that is taking up all the space and all the oxygen in the cinemas, there's very, very little else out. So there are only two films which are being released cinematically next week, which I am interested in, one of which I've already seen. I saw it at the Film Bath Festival, and I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. The film Supernova is outstanding. In my Oscar preview show, I think it should have got three Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. It's that good. Aging married couple Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci are going on one final trip in that old camper van around the Lake District where Colin Firth comes from because this will not be possible in the very near future because Stanley Tucci is rapidly losing his mind to dementia. So before things get terminally bad, Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci are going on one final trip together and confronting the imminent departure, whether that be physical or mental, of Stanley Tucci on this one final trip. I think it's outstanding. Do go back to my Film Bath Festival special episode, which I released at the end of last year. It's Yay Naomi episode 92. I might even clip out my review of Supernova from that episode and play it again next week because I want to make absolutely sure I promote Supernova when it comes out. So far, it is one of my films of the year. And the other film which is coming out cinematically next week is another art house entry. It's a Polish film called Sweat, which follows a young female fitness influencer who makes her money by sharing her life on Instagram and three days in her life as she either destroys or greatly enhances her online reputation by doing the exact same thing. When your life is lived entirely online, having an emotional post where you say, I'm so alone, is that killing your brand or is that promoting it in the idea that any publicity is good publicity? And yeah, that sounds like a really interesting premise. So I am interested in Sweat and I will be checking that out at the cinema next week. At home viewing, I still have to get to the Sky Cinema released film, The Comeback Trail in which 1970s film producer Robert De Niro comes up with a scheme alongside his colleague Zach Braff that if he works out such a way that his ageing 
film star Tommy Lee Jones dies on set, the insurance will be enough to pay off mobster Morgan Freeman. So a very morbid version of the producers, and I am curious about the comeback trail, which I have ready to go on my skybox. What should have been ready to go on my skybox was Richard Linklater's last film, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? I did record it off Sky Cinema because it was available and I did want to watch it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Richard Linklater. But when I sat down to watch it, I realised that the broadcast that I got through my satellite dish was corrupted, so I couldn't watch it. So I've now downloaded it onto my Skybox and it is ready and waiting for me, but that's why the streaming section of this particular show was so short. But I will be getting to Where Do You Go, Bernadette, in which Kate Blanchett basically abandons her family in her the pursuit of art, which could go a number of different ways. Also on streaming and still ready to go on my tablet is the horror film The Stylist, in which a hairdresser becomes so obsessed with one of her clients who is about to get married that she starts interfering uh, in a murderous way in her life. So yeah, a nice psychological horror slasher film there, which is ready to go on my tablet. Also on streaming platforms, I'm most interested in the anarchic road teen romance movie Dinner in America, the Native American girl coming of age in Once Upon a River, and Anthony Hopkins acting in his wife's latest film, Elise. I'm also curious about Dr. Bird's Advice for Sad Poets, in which a disturbed young boy takes dating advice and support from a talking pigeon when his sister disappears and he is attracted to a classmate. So yeah, that could be quirky and weird, and I'm curious about that. I'm still curious about the movie-released film Shiva Baby, which I have pirated and is ready to go, and also the Amazon Prime-released weepy relationship movie Our Friend. Again, not my kind of thing, but similarly to Fatherhood, I'll probably get around to that at some point. And on Netflix, we have the Black Lives Matter movie Monster, the Mexican historical LGBT drama Dance of the 41, the Indian feminist film Skater Girl, the CG animated film Dog Gone Trouble, the documentary Hating Peter Tatchell, the art house feminist horror film question mark tragic jungle from mexico the indonesian film ali and ratu ratu queens about a teenage boy traveling to new york in order to reconnect with his estranged mother and new this week on netflix we have what looks like a reasonably big release a comedy film called good on paper which is written by and stars Ilza Schlesinger, the somewhat confrontational stand-up who has been making inroads into mainstream fare, but this is a film she wrote in and stars in and is apparently somewhat based on real life, about a hard-working stand-up comedian, played by Ilza Schlesinger, who 
has basically given up on relationships until she meets a seemingly perfect man played by Ryan Hansen. But the more Ilza Schlesinger spends time with this man, the more she realises maybe he's not all he seems to be. Who exactly is this guy I am spending so much time and effort on and having romantic entanglements with? So, yeah, that could sound really interesting. There's also a Spanish true crime documentary which looks, at one of the same time, fascinating and horrifying. It's called Murder by the Coast, about a horrific miscarriage of justice which happened in Spain, where a teenage girl was murdered and the former lesbian lover of her mother was tried and convicted on incredibly flimsy evidence, but you know, she's a quote-unquote predatory lesbian, she must have done it. So she was jailed. And this happened in 1999. In the late 20th century, homophobia got an innocent woman put in jail for I think it was something like 15 years. So yeah, I'm curious and horrified to see Murder by the Coast the Spanish true crime documentary. And I'm also somewhat curious about the Italian film Security, which has just been released onto Netflix. And this has a rather interesting backstory to it. In 2013, Italian director Paolo Verzi did a film called Human Traffic in Italy, which was an adaptation of an American novel called Human Traffic by Stephen Amidon. This was widely seen at festivals. It was a a prestige Italian picture, got submitted by Italy to the Oscars in 2013, didn't end up getting nominated. But Human Traffic was a big deal film in Italy in 2013. They actually made a remake in America of Human Traffic as well, which I never got around to, but maybe I will at some point. But anyway... Stephen Amidon wrote Human Traffic. So clearly, Italian producers thought, okay, Stephen Amidon is a hit in Italy, let's adapt another one of his films. So in Italy, Security gets made, which is based on an American novel by Stephen Amidon. And it's also directed by an American, Peter Chelsom, who doesn't have the best CV on IMDb. So an American director adapting an American novel in Italy with an Italian cast. Kind of odd, but anyway, it does sound kind of interesting. A teenage girl makes accusations of rape against an influential person, and coincidentally, her father also gets arrested for paedophilia. So what exactly is going on? who is protecting whom is you know the elites closing ranks and protecting themselves and who can tell the truth maybe it's the guy who's watching all the security cameras that there are around this wealthy neighborhood so yeah that does sound kind of interesting and i did basically like human traffic and this seems like a somewhat similar tone a somewhat similar story so i think i will be checking out the italian film security at some point as well So, in the next episode, I will definitely be reviewing 
the cinematic release Sweat. I will be doing my best to encourage you to watch the other cinematic release Supernova. And there will be various other streaming films and home release films along the way as well. Almost certainly the comeback trail and Where'd You Go, Bernadette? But really, who knows? So, for this episode, I do thoroughly recommend the cinematic film In the Heights. It's exuberant, it's fun, it's energetic, it's operatic in the best senses of the word. Arguably too long, but it kind of doesn't matter when the set pieces are so well done. And it apparently needs financial support, so do go out and check out In the Heights. I thoroughly recommend that. And also a a less passionate recommendation, but I do recommend the Filipino film Fangirl on Netflix. It's got some interesting and uncomfortable things to say about fame. I'm impressed that the star is basically playing a fictionalised version of himself. And it raises some really interesting, really uncomfortable questions. So I do recommend you check out the Filipino film Fangirl on Netflix if you can cope with it. That's definitely a film that should have trigger warnings with it, as indeed should The Girl with the Gun, the other Filipino film I talked about. But yeah, that's the strongest recommendations for this episode. And all that remains for me to say now is this has been Yane Omer presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!